Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa the podcast where I get to speak to changemakers and innovators who are applying novel applications and new ideas to solving business and development challenges in Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Shirley. Rebecca is Director of Research, Data and Innovation at the World Resources Institute. She's based in Nairobi, Kenya, but I know today she's in, in Cameroon and she's speaking to us from her hotel in Cameroon. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Marcus. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. I know it's been really hard to find a slot in your busy schedule, but I've been really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to talk about climate finance, about the energy transition. If we have a little time, we might talk about natural capital, but specifically, I think we're going to delve into the opportunities in Africa and the challenges in the global journey to net zero. But before we do that, I wonder if you could introduce yourself, tell us where you grew up, what career you've pursued, and where you find yourself today. Thanks again, Marcus, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for having not just myself, but WRI, the World Resources Institute, able to share a bit about what we're working on your podcast and your audience. So I myself, I'm from the Caribbean. My mother is from Trinidad. My father is from Kingston, Jamaica. And my siblings and I grew up between them. And actually, I began my career in energy science from a point of view of energy security. So how do I make sure that my little islands have sufficient and reliable energy stock when oil markets dry up in the future, which they will? And the answer to that question a long time ago for me was always clean energy technologies. So then I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley in California, where I had the opportunity to do a lot of research in Southeast Asia, building energy systems models for alternatives to things like large hydropower. And when I moved my family here or to Kenya about four years ago, uh, my husband is Kenyan. I honestly wondered, you know, very frankly, what can I offer as a person of the diaspora to East Africa with my skills? How can I be of service to these amazing, warm, hilarious, industrious, talented people that are already here. I found uh, that the research questions I was focused on as a small islander actually applied quite well here in East Africa. I keep saying here because I'm there and not, not yes, in Cameroon. Yes, yes. But you know, we're often more alike than we are different. So questions around how to deliver energy security are there. Questions of how to make sure clean energy technologies are cost-effective are there. For us, perhaps in the Caribbean, it was more challenge of scale. Here, it is a much more complex, multifaceted challenge around affordability, around the historic nature of energy systems and how they've been designed, around the diversity of resources that could potentially be leveraged. There's so much. You know, the latest data post-pandemic suggests that there are about 560 million persons or more on the continent that don't have access to basic electricity and more for clean cooking. Um, So that's somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of every person left on the planet that does not have basic electricity and clean cooking are here. So the starting point is is the base is quite low. And and I've sort of built a career here on 
trying to unlock that challenge. Uh, how do you make the massive investments that are required in grid infrastructure, in generation, and everything in between to deliver access to homes and to businesses and to factories and industrial scale plants? How do we make that happen? How do we plan for those re- required investments? And so that's a career that I've been able to build, leveraging that base of you know really deep study on energy systems modeling. Thank you for that overview. So you've grown up in the West Indies, you've studied in the US, you're living now in Nairobi, and you're focused on energy systems. There's a big imperative, as you say, to address energy security in Africa, energy access. The figure that you referenced, 560 million without access to electricity. Is progress being made? Are African nations getting closer to delivering the energy that households need and that industry needs? Are you optimistic that this energy access can accelerate over the course of the next years? Well, I'm optimistic, Marcus, because of the technologies that exist now and the progress that has been made to date since delivering universal energy access was made a sustainable development goal. Yes, the numbers are declining in terms of those that are gaining access to electricity, but partly it's because there's a little bit of a push and pull between energy access rates and population growth. And if population growth is sort of masking, if you will, those energy access gains, then it can look like you're on a downward trend. But actually, there is a lot of progress being and a number of countries, more than two thirds of countries across the continent now have universal energy access targets. They have rural and urban electrification targets. They even have decentralized renewable energy targets, meaning targets for how much of that power at minimum will be delivered through off-grid or decentralized technologies that can reach communities where they are. So, so I'm optimistic about that side of things, that there is a goal, that there is intentionality, that there are plans. Where the challenge lies for me still is on how that access is going to be financed. There is nowhere in the world, Marcus, where the, the exercise of delivering electrification to a population was a commercially viable, you know, really profitable exercise. But somehow that burden of profitability and commerciality has been placed on the continent. And so it's very difficult to finance. I'll give you a couple of reasons why. So let's say that you're an energy systems developer and you want to build a solar system for a rural community of maybe three to 500 persons. The first thing that you're going to have to do is take out a loan for that system that you want to build. And because renewables have this very high capital requirement up at the beginning, it means that you're going to be very susceptible to the interest rates on that loan. And we face very, very high interest rates here on the continent. Then let's assume that you've, you've solved that challenge and you've, you've paid for your system. Another challenge is around the fact that that to deliver the high quality, reliable, variable, renewable energy to your community of, of interest, you have to make sure that you've got really strong grids that can absorb that renewable energy, that can ensure that you have as minimal as possible a level of outage and as minimal as possible a level of frequency of outage. And we here have quite weak grids. And so we need heavy investments in grid infrastructure, the bones of delivering energy service. Now, globally, an average of $0.6 billion of grid investment is required for every billion dollars of generation investment. That's on average globally, but for Sub-Saharan Africa, the International Energy Agency expects that that's about 1.5 billion for every billion of grid investment. So that's an extra 1.5 billion that for every billion of, of generation that we need to figure out how we're going to finance that, Where did, who fits that bill. What I'll say finally, Marcus, is that on the sort of the back end, once you've built your system, you've got a strong grid that's supporting it, you're getting reliable power out to people, you have to start making back your investment. 
And mm. with renewables, like with energy as a resource, you are making back that investment through the kilowatt hour sales. So if your customers are at a lifeline tariff or if they're consuming, you know, very, very little power, um, what I mean by that, it's going to take you a really long time to pay off that loan and to make back your investment and to turn a profit, even if it's a marginal profit. And so starting from that low base that we talked about before, starting from that low base of consumers, but also that low base of grid infrastructure and dealing with what we deal with, which is the very high cost of capital. These are all real challenges. So I am optimistic, but I feel that we really need to focus now. Now that we've got targets and everything, we need to focus as an international community on helping to unlock the financial solutions that would then allow for uh, energy access technologies to proliferate across the continent. Well, thank you for that overview. Some really interesting issues you raise. I'm reminded of Al Gore's great speech in Sharm el-Sheikh. At one point, he referenced the insanity, I think was the word he used, when referencing the fact that it costs seven times more to build a a solar plant in Nigeria than it does in an OECD country. Um, So that cost of capital is something that he was very keen to point out and the need to address that. It's a complex issue because there's clearly the requirement to make projects bankable with all of those considerations, some of which you addressed around our purchase agreements, the reliability of the customer to, to, to pay. And there's also both the reality and the perception of, of risk surrounding these projects and, and country risk. And we know that continent's risk profile at large or the perception of risk is one that's been hugely elevated beyond, in, in my experience, beyond practical reality. But coming to this point around making these projects bankable, you talked about the importance of not just investing in the generation capability, but actually on the distribution side. Funnily enough, I was speaking with Andrew Herkovitz at the DFC, the US and DFI, who you may recall, Rebecca, or you'll know him, I'm sure, was head of Power Africa for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And we were talking specifically about transmission and distribution. And I was surprised to learn really what you've just pointed out, just the deficit of investment that's being made in in those in transmission and distribution. And um, in speaking with him, I learned in the way that you've revealed to me now, it's complex. And getting the sums of capital to into transmission lines is going to require multifaceted approaches to ensure that the investor can get a, a return on that investment. From what I was extrapolating, a lot of this will rely on meterings and traceability and the ability to get the customer to pay. You've been working and you do work as Director of, of Data and, and Technology and Innovation at, at WRI. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more at a, a sort of more micro level around the technology systems now being applied to power sector and how you feel that they can be quite catalytic in opening in in sort of releasing sums of capital into these projects and that's so required there are quite a number of technology advances being made today yeah. around smart metering i think that's what you're talking about yes it is and yeah. by flow of information from a service provider to a customer and vice versa even decentralized technologies now have that type of capacity, that type of capability. So I think now, as for instance, where I used to work in in Uganda, as customers are being rolled online, 
the technology that's being used are already smart meters. So that connectivity, I think, between customer and utility exists, and, and that creates sort of a couple of other opportunities in addition to what you mentioned, which is sort of traceability of payment for service, but it also allows for things like net metering, for feed-in tariffs, you know, for what we call the language being used now is prosumers, consumers that also produce electricity and put that out onto the grid and can be paid for those services. And so to me, there's also the opportunity beyond traceability of also bringing communities into the very exercise of energy service delivery itself. This has worked well in many advanced economies. I think of California, as I mentioned before, where I studied, and how because of feed-in tariffs, homes, businesses can have third parties build solar systems onto their own physical properties and be able to produce power that that goes onto the grid and get paid for that. So that is an an opportunity. I think the bigger challenge around transmission and distribution, however, because that that really solves some generation challenge, the, the transmission and distribution question, really the multilateral development banks who are getting involved here, the Africa Development Bank, really taking up the charge on these issues across the continent and figuring out ways to do much lower cost financing and de-risking of those kinds of investments. You've also got, of course, the Africa uh, Union Commission and AFRIC, which is designing the Continental Transmission Master Plan, looking at the power pools that exist across the continent and how they are developing what their plans are for interconnectivity and then leveling that up to sort of a continental master plan. And along with that, a single electricity market for the continent so that power can be traded across countries. Now, once that starts to happen, then the investment that is required for transmission really starts to begin making sense because you're trading massive amounts of power between countries, which does not exist today. There are very few countries on the continent that Mm. do power trading. The Southern African power pool might be the most advanced. So I think those are some of the, who call them sort of macro scale advances that are happening right now that will really hopefully change what the network looks like in the future. I believe that AFRIC has said that by 2040, most of the continent is going to be interconnected. And that would be a game changer if, of course, that is actually able to happen. There are, of course, challenges with with power pools. We're talking about a lot of sovereignty issues and, you know, harmonizing regulations, harmonizing your grid codes and standards and so on. So it's a difficult issue. I'm not going to beat around the bush on that. But I think the vision is there of what could be if we did truly have an an interconnected continent. Well, it's wonderful to hear about that vision and relatively near-term timeline that you reference for interconnectivity by 2040. That's at the macro level. I wonder if you place more store in those sort of those macro solutions than you do perhaps on smaller projects. And forgive me, I'm not quite sure of the term, but smaller projects that are perhaps off the grid and and more community focused and and scaling those. I say that because presumably it's much easier to finance um, smaller projects. You might be surprised. It's also very difficult to finance the smaller projects. The challenge there is around aggregation and around scale, because for many commercial financiers, if the ticket size is too small, the transaction costs are too high. So Mm. there are challenges on either side. Honestly, there isn't a silver solution and we need the push for decentralized renewables as much as we need to build grid systems just like everywhere else in the world has that are strong, that are dependable, that are resilient. To me, it's not a sort of an either or will Africa be, you know, connected through decentralized renewables or will it 
connected through the big grid. It's going to be both. And, and in fact, the International Energy Agency's latest projections for the continent do show that while some, I think it might be 50% or 55% of connections would be best served through decentralized renewables, you know, as much as 45% would be delivered through grid. Um, so so to me, I, I, I try not to, to pit them against each other. I think we need sort of an yes. all an all systems okay. go <laughs> approach. Standard approach. Thank you. We have uh, Rita Madeira from the IEA on this podcast this year. So I'll be able to delve into some of those uh, points you raised with her in a bit more more detail. But I wonder if I could ask you just to talk more broadly about the, the status of the energy transition in Africa. You've spoken to some of the challenges. You've referenced for us just now some of the imperatives around decentralized renewables and the implications there for, you know, actually legislating so that that can be the case. We, we know that it's only been very recently in South Africa that I think within the last year that the, the sector was liberalized to enable independent power producers to produce, I think it was up to 100 megawatts, and that's being review, reviewed again and, and sort of released the stranglehold that ESCOM has on the sector. But that's the case in point in South Africa. I wonder, more broadly, taking a, a sweep across the continent, which are the most progressive countries in terms of establishing the appropriate policy and regulatory environment for um, off-grid smaller projects and the ability for um, IPPs to produce in a decentralized way in the way that you've referenced? I can really mostly only speak to East African countries where I've done a lot of work, but I think Kenya and Uganda, uh, as well as Tanzania, also as well as Rwanda, the, the, the East African countries are, are doing quite a bit on regulation and incentives to grow decentralized renewable technologies expansion. So, for instance, in Kenya, we've got the waiver of the import duties for solar systems that come in. So that provides a big incentive to developers. In Uganda, you've got the mini-grid regulations. I think they're the first first country on the continent to have a formal mini-grid regulation. So beyond a certain size of capacity, there are standards for licensing, for permitting, and so on. And Tanzania has past been a leader on financial incentive schemes for, for connections. So I think there is definitely awareness and there is a lot of work happening, a lot more work to be done, of course, to figure out ways to you know, expand the sector, but also ensure that that there is a standard of service that's being met by communities to, to ensure that communities are not being gouged on the cost for these services. As I mentioned before, it's not been a commercial exercise anywhere else. So it's a balancing act, I think, and one that countries are actively engaged in as we speak. Thank you. I referenced a little earlier um, South Africa, the liberalisation that they enacted earlier this year. I wanted to get your perspective on their Just Energy Transition Plan. They launched this last year. I think the investment plan was then announced this year in, in Sharm el-Sheikh with the commitments of each of those donors, the EU, US, UK among them. Have you had an opportunity to look at that plan and the investment plan that, that supports it? And how, how replicable do you think plans such as the, the JetP for South Africa, how replicable do you think these are for other African states? Well, I think the South African Energy Transitions Pledge and Partnership is definitely a landmark, a flagship for the continent. It shows a lot of data and analysis went into the design of the plan for South Africa. And also the Trust Transitions Framework was one that was highly participatory. So they got a lot of community engagement 
from stakeholders across the board in that. So I think that there is definitely there are elements of it that are very replicable or, or should be replicable across the continent. The South African Energy Transitions Pledge is, of course, one that is based on decarbonization of the South African energy landscape because its mix is so heavily coal. What many of the other countries on the continent struggle with is not having that challenge. You know, what often gets lost in the debate is that the continent is not a single story. And we talked about the fact that the baselines are low before, but where they do have power, many sub-Saharan African countries already rely on low-carbon technology. So Kenya, where I I live, Mm -hmm. generates over 90% of the electricity produced on its grid from renewables like hydro and geothermal. Even in West Africa, where shares are generally lower for renewables, countries like Ghana generate a third of power through renewables. Just before the COP, I was in Namibia. Countries like Namibia are at the forefront of innovating around clean fuels like green hydrogen. So there are a number of countries that would not have that decarbonization incentive. And rather, as I mentioned, it's about how do we continue to develop energy systems and rapidly ramp up power generation and distribution in ways that are reliable, accessible, resilient, while staying the course, if you will. Yeah. And compatibility. So I think that's one of the distinctions between South Africa and many other countries. And it's why the questions around what is the path for Africa as it pertains to permissible or optimal uses of its fossil fuel technologies, what do those look like? So that's where those questions kind of become quite interesting. Yes. Yeah, so many African leaders have been clear that they fully intend to exploit their natural gas reserves. President Adesina of, of the ADB has been pretty equivocal in stating that it's the right of, of African nations to exploit those reserves and, and pointed out that the contribution to global emissions would be very small. The energy security, energy access issue remains the priority for those countries. I wonder where you stand on that and how you view natural gas exploitation and whether you have any concerns that countries who are planning to develop their gas reserves like Mozambique, like Tanzania, may may face themselves in a position where they've got stranded assets in 10, 20 years' time? Yeah, it's a good question. Let's zoom out a little bit, look at it from more of a global perspective, and then then I promise I will come back to Africa. Um, But of course, even as we're celebrating the fact that renewables growth rates are constantly being projected upwards and that we'll have more and more renewable generation by the time that we get to 2050. What's key is the fossil fuel phase-out rates. That's even more important Mm. in my mind, um, right? It's like, how quickly are we phasing out? And what we know from the latest reports from partners of ours like SEI, uh, they suggest that we're very, very far off course. So we know that for oil and for coal, we need to have peaked already and be declining. In fact, for coal, it needs to be something of like a cliff face, like from now, right? We need to just rapidly fall off the face of this thing. For gas, we have until about 2030 and then need to decline very rapidly thereafter. And it's this space, it's gas exports, liquid natural gas, that is really actually, if anything, expanding rather than declining, even with that 2030 deadline for for peaking looming. And if we think a little bit about the history of this space, it's grown sort of gradually since the 1970s. That is gas exports I'm talking about. It plateaued in the early 2010s. I, I sort of know this history because, as I mentioned, part of my family is from Trinidad and Tobago. And the mainstay of the economy for Trinidad is, is oil and gas. And the discussions around diversification and what else do we do got very, very heated in that early 2010s period, especially because the U.S., which was used to be one of our major importers, in fact, the largest importer, 
importer of gas from Trinidad start to develop its own domestic capacities. And since 2015, which is after the Paris Accord, trade volumes in natural gas have grown very, very rapidly. And this trajectory is vastly different from those that are consistent with 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius pathways. In fact, the latest report from Climate Tracker that came out just this week called Paris Maligned, I recommend reading it if you can. It says that in 2021, companies all across the world greenlighted some 136 billion USD of investment in new upstream oil and gas assets over the next decade. And a further 30 billion were approved just in the first quarter of 2022. So almost all of that is unaligned with a 1.5 degree pathway. 62% of it is unaligned with a well below two degree Celsius pathway. I start with that context, Marcus, because I know that the conversation globally really zooms into Africa very closely when you say things like, you know, they're planning to build out and invest in in their gas resources. But the question is, who's not? And the worrying thing about this, uh, that most of this expansion has happened after the Paris Accord. So in the age of our knowledge Mm. about climate impacts is when we have grown the sector. There's two worrying things here. One is that most of the expansion is happening in high income countries. And second of all, countries that are not dependent on fossil fuels as their primary source of revenue. That really worrisome, right? If we look at who the big players are here on gas, the US, Canada, Saudi Arabia, on oil, again, the US, Brazil, Iran, are these the countries that need to be expanding capacity fast when they're already high income, when they are less dependent on fossil fuel revenues for economy? So to me, there's much bigger sort of political, geopolitical questions around what is happening in the gas space. And then, then it makes the questions around what's happening in Africa we, we had, um, on our last podcast, we had Mozilla Mtanjani, who is at Exaro Resources, one of the top five coal producers in South Africa. And he pointed out to us that in the last year, the quantum of their exports to the EU has shot up significantly. It's ironic that the EU is one of the funders of the South Africa's Just Energy Transition Plan, at the same time as it's increasing its import of South African coal. But it just shows, I suppose, the delicate trade-offs that are are being made to ensure that economies like South Africa can develop whilst also being deliberate about transitioning over the medium to long term. But certainly in the short term, those figures that you reference from from the Climate Tracker report are, are worrying. Yeah. And I think we don't want to excuse bad economics, right? I think on the continent, most of the continent's oil reserves are very high cost to extract. So we don't want to excuse bad economics. I think the challenge here is that we need very quickly um, to develop some principles around the equity of production and the equity of phase Mm -hmm. out and phase down. And this is, you know, why at COP, it was so troubling to many that knowing what we know about how quickly oil, gas and coal need to phase out, that we still don't have that kind of language in the final text. We didn't get that language in the final text this year, despite, you know, advances that were made on loss and damage and so on. I think here there was a bit of disappointment, especially as we know going into the next COP that we have to be very cautious of these issues. So so for me, the point is we need a managed global phase down, phase out of production that is in line with international climate goals. If we don't have actively managed, phased out, it's likely to be highly inequitable. And that's where we are right now, that it actually is quite inequitable. And the answer is, in my mind, not that African countries should go, right, well, if they're doing it, then we're going to do it as well. You know, we need to base decisions on more rational, economic 
an investment risk analysis, but without a global, equitable, principled phase-out plan, what you're likely to find is countries sort of doing what they see is in their their own best interest. So that's where I, I stand on that. So how, how disappointed were you with the outcomes of COP? There was so much celebration around loss and damage. We failed to recognize the huge disappointment and, and the grave consequences of the sort of failures to agree mitigation and adaptation targets and, and acceleration. Well, I think this COP was about two things. It was about solidarity and accountability. And on solidarity, we did see progress. We know that a number of countries who are not responsible for the climate crisis are now currently already in a big way with its impacts. We look at Pakistan, we look at the East African droughts. And so solidarity around adaptation, finance, and around loss and damage, of course, was a big agenda. And we saw progress on those various fronts. We saw progress on the global goal for adaptation. We saw progress on commitments for finance. And of course, as we all know, the loss and damage is now in the text and there is now promise of development of a fund. And we have to look forward to the next COP of figuring out the logistics around who fills that fund. I think the other side of the COP was around accountability. Because we know that a few countries and their very high income class of consumers are responsible for a majority of the emissions. And there's an 80-20 rule here, right? But then even within that 80% of countries, that 80%, that 20% of countries responsible for 80% of emissions, within that space, there is even a, a 20% of those consumers that are really responsible for that country's emissions. And so the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities is really important. So we needed to be seeing, as I mentioned, commitments to phase out. What we got was not that, uh, so we have to look forward to that hopefully for next year. And rather, what we're seeing instead is new LNG partnerships being launched internationally. And so these are things that we have to be worrisome about. And and I think we have to be conscious of the narrative of the short-term crisis because the vast majority of LNG trading is happening in the long-term market. And this accelerated growth in LNG exports, as I mentioned, has been happening for the past seven years. So, so it's something that we do have to look at and be sort of honest with ourselves about. We know that oil needs to have peaked, coal needs to peak and decline very sharply, gas needs to peak by 2030. The fact that we didn't see and didn't get phase-out language, I think, is frustrating to many who work in this space. Thank you for those insights. It's our tradition that I invite our guests to tell us what they're reading as a final question. They're reading or podcasts that they like to listen to and to share that with our audience. Are you happy to do that, Rebecca? Sure. This is a little bit wonky, but I've been reading a couple of reports from the Energy Transitions Commission, who are partners of ours, on green steel, green ammonia and green hydrogen. Just learning a bit more about what's happening in these spaces internationally because they're becoming very relevant conversations on the continent. I want to know you know, what's, what's, what's the best practice that's out there. So a, a little wonky, but that's literally what I was reading just on my plane ride over here to Cameroon. We had um, Sigi Hugerman, co-initiator of the African Hydrogen Partnership on this podcast, giving our audience an education on all things related to green hydrogen. He was so inspiring that we joined the African Hydrogen Partnership soon after. When I say we, I mean the firm that I lead, Africa Practice. And my colleague, Richard Kiplagat, who's based with you in, in Nairobi, in fact, is chairing their advocacy task force, trying to work with private operators or project developers across the continent and engage with governments to get the appropriate policies and and regulations to help us 
scale up hydrogen projects and the hydrogen economy opportunity for Africa. In Kenya, we think the opportunity is profound and because of what you've referenced earlier, the 90% renewable energy supply that the, the country already has and the massive geothermal potential, which of course is 24-7 power, which is great if you're trying to avoid the intermittency of, of the other renewables. So I'm a student of hydrogen myself, Rebecca, and I try and read as, <laughs> as much as I can on the subject at the moment. It's great to see that some African countries are, are really trying to embrace this technology. If you're in Namibia, you'll have seen it, I hope, just recently, how they're progressing with, yes. with German support, actually German finance, and how they have comparative advantage over many countries in the world. So it'll be interesting to see how much progress they and, and others make. Um, but if they can, then we will be on our way to addressing that delta that you refer to, the 560 million Africans who don't have access to electricity. And at the same time, we'll be finding scalable solutions, we hope, to decarbonizing our economies. Just this week as we speak, and I thought it was worth referencing, but the European Parliament have approved the introduction of their carbon border adjustment mechanism. Yes. And why this is important is because from next year, starting October 23rd, under a pilot scheme, imports to the EU will effectively face a carbon tax. And it will be important that our African exporters to, to the EU are able to demonstrate through traceability and other mechanisms that they're producing these goods and services with low carbon and renewable power. But also, I have a feeling that if those countries like Kenya, who really have comparative advantage in terms of renewable energy production, and, and you reference the 90%, that hopefully we'll see manufacturers, global manufacturers, choosing to locate their manufacturing bases in countries like Kenya that have clean, abundant sources of renewable power. That's an exciting prospect for a continent that desperately needs to industrialize in order to address the youth unemployment crisis that we have. So complex issues, complex challenges. It's great to hear that experts like yourself and the WRA who do amazing work. I'm such a great fan of WRA and Wanjira and Mr. Dasgupta, who I think is your president, or I know is your president and CEO. I'm grateful to you for coming on to this podcast. I would have loved to talk to you about your mission in Cameroon, where you are now, I think with your forest and ecosystem services team, a subject that I'm really interested in and that I think holds so much value for the continent going forwards. But thank you, Rebecca. It's been really lovely to be reminded of some of the linkages that connect Caribbean and Africa as well. When I was a, a young consultant, I had done some consultancy in Trinidad and Tobago, and I'd, I'd love my time there. I'm so glad. I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself. That always makes us very happy. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I think it was a really, really great discussion. Uh, and as I mentioned, I think if we can move towards those principles of equity and those commitments to, you know, delivering low cost, long term finance for the continent, things look very, very optimistic in my mind. I think, you know, you mentioned we have a very young workforce. You know, we've got the renewables potential. High variable renewable energy technologies are available high variable renewable energy technology systems are possible. So what I try to focus on is what do we need to do to unlock that? Then I think the future becomes very bright. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Wonderful. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.